Hello, this is Nathan Horowitz with the first chapter of Beyond Wahuya, and the name of the chapter is River of Voices. Just got into Lago Agrio on the night bus from Quito. My legs itch like crazy. At a cafe on Vicente Rocafuerte Street, I'm waiting for the post office to open, which, the sign says, happens at 8 a.m., it's 8.14 now. At 7.45, the deep friars had already been fired up at the sidewalk stands, ready for french fries, sausages, pieces of chicken, and time itself. A man went out hunting with his blowgun and darts. Sitting within the smell of frying thyme, I see the scene taking place again before my eyes. On the bank of a river, this man found a baby playing by herself on the sand, all alone. He thought he might need to bring her home and adopt her. Looking far up the river, though, he saw her mother, a powerfully built young woman crouching ankle-deep in the current, perfectly still. Almost too fast to see, she pounced, and a great splash went up from the water. She sprang to her feet with a wriggling fish in her hands. In a moment the man would realize who she was. At 11.25 last night, a tall, skinny, white guy flagged down the last bus out of Quito, heading east toward the jungle. The driver stopped but said there were no seats left. I said I didn't mind. I sat by the door on my stepdad's 40-year-old olive-green U.S. Army duffel bag, packed with my clothes and books. After a couple of hours, a drunk woke up, puked on the bag, and fell back to sleep. The driver stopped the bus to let me wash off the puke in a waterfall. As Heraclitus said, everything flows. Afterwards, I spread out my plastic rain poncho in the aisle and lay down, resting my head on the dry part of the bag. The bus was a metal canoe flowing down the dark river of the night. Sleeping for five hours, I was the dustiest and most comfortable passenger. When I awoke, we were approaching Lago Agrio, beyond my red converse low tops. Through the dirty windshield, the eastern sky was a rainbow serpent of pink, blue, and yellow coiled above the jungle town. I'm halfway through a novel, A River of Words Between Two Covers, Sophie's Choice, which my now ex-girlfriend Ricky mailed me from Senegal six or seven moons ago. My fellow apprentice shamans, Dave Sternstein and Mark Summerman, are in Banos and the USA, respectively. In two weeks, I'll start teaching English in the Sequoia village of San Pablo, as a condition for a volunteer visa from the Ministry of Exterior Relations. I recently joined the underground economy, running a jungle tour. Four tourists found me in Quito. I hired my Quitenian friend Che of the Hostal Labirinto and his Australian girlfriend Christine as cooks. On December 27, 1996, I went to Lago Agrio a day ahead of the others to meet my business partner, Rufino, a professional guide, the son of my shaman teacher, Joaquin Piowa. 
In perfect third-world fashion, Rufino didn't show up, and there was no way to know where he was. I bought provisions for the trip. The next morning, Che, Christine, and the tourists arrived. Two Norte Americanos, Norm and Julie, and two Holandeses, Rose and Joost, all bedraggled from the nighttime bus ride from Quito. We rode a pickup truck taxi for an hour to Chiritza, the little port village on the Aguarico River. I looked for the inevitable motor canoe heading down river that would charge us a pittance for the ride to Joaquin's, but there was none, though we waited an hour and a half, and though I prayed impatiently. Finally, I asked around for someone who had a motor canoe and nothing to do, and soon engaged a barefoot, bushy-haired black man from the coast to help us for 200,000 sucres, $33, plus gas. The thing that impressed me about Narciso when I met him, other than that he had a boat and an assistant, a young mestizo, was that he was stone-cold sober in a crowd of drunks. That takes insane amounts of self-control in Ecuador, where sobriety is considered a horrific social disease to be attacked and cured by any means necessary. In his canoe, shouting over the noise of the motor, Narciso kept up a constant stream of jokes. The ones I could hear were very funny. His assistant leaned forward and, grinning, yelled in my ear, Black people are very noisy! Yes, I yelled back, nodding. I had never thought of that, but there may have been some truth to it. When Narciso dropped us off at Cabaña Supernatura, our destination, my partner Rufino's wife, Katya, told me that Rufino was waiting for me and my tourists at Cocaya, a name I had never heard, a stream two hours hike back from the river. She added that the Supernatura's kitchen stove was out of gas. As she told me this, I heard Narciso start up again. I sprinted back to the river and hollered to him that we'd like to rehire him and his canoe and crew, please, to go back to Aguilar's shop across the river and just upstream to engage the empty cooking gas tank for a full one, and then to Edmundo's house across the river to hire Edmundo's son-in-law Sixto to guide us to Cocaya the next morning. Wanting to get back up river, Narciso was grumpy, but agreed to help for 50,000 sucres more. With the gas bought and Sixto hired, we settled into Supernatura, with Katya's permission, as Che and Christine were cooking dinner. I set my two baby boas free. Next morning after breakfast, Sixto crossed the river to where we were, and led us a long way past a swamp and up and down low hills to the place called Cocaya. Rufino was expecting us, along with his two older sons, Fermin and Luis. They had a clearing near a stream, and a lean-to shelter of saplings and palm fronds. A campfire was smoldering. Sixto and the boys stayed behind to fish in the stream, while Rufino took us on a hike. We didn't see any exciting wildlife, but the jungle rocked its insect, bird, and frog jams all around us, and Rufino found a somewhat anticlimactic 
vine you can cut with a machete and drink water from. We each got a few drops. As night fell, we dined on plentiful piranha Sixto and the boys had caught and roasted on the fire. The tender flesh was full of tiny bones. Washing the fish down with a cup of water, golden light from the campfire dancing on his face, Rufino said, Ninety years ago, some Sionas hid along the stream here from the bosses who were trying to enslave them to tap rubber. I translated this into English for our guests and added that the Sionas were cousins to the Sequoias and that the rubber boom was a time not only of enslavement but also of imported disease that decimated the populations here. Rufino went on. The Sionas heard ghosts talking to each other. These were the spirits of long-ago inhabitants who had returned to this place because it's so beautiful. Because of those voices they heard, the Sionas named the stream Kokaya, which means River of Voices. We sat in silence, finishing our piranha, staring at the flames and embers of the fire, while the voices of the forest meandered a rainbow river around us. Rufino, I said, people talk sometimes about Wanteanko, the jaguar goddess. Can you tell us about her? Well, my partner mused, you could say that she's been a power among the animals since the beginning of time. Do you know any stories about her? You all want to hear? You can translate? All right. A long time ago, a man goes out hunting with his blowgun and darts. On the bank of a river, he finds a baby playing by herself on the sand, all alone. He thinks he might need to bring her home and adopt her. Looking far up the river, though, he sees her mother, a powerfully built young woman crouching ankle-deep in the water, perfectly still. Almost too fast to see, she pounces, and a great splash goes up from the water. She springs to her feet with a wriggling fish in her hands. She bites the fish's head off and eats it, then throws back the body. The man realizes who she is. Wantayanko, the jaguar goddess. Fish heads taste to her like delicious fruits. So, instead of taking the baby, the man sticks the tip of one of his poisoned blowgun darts under the nail of the baby's little finger and breaks it off. Then he runs into the forest. Wantanko hears her baby crying and goes to investigate. The baby dies. Wantanko says, Who did this to you? Was it your Uncle Deer? Uncle Monkey? Uncle Taper? She changes into her jaguar form and sniffs the corpse all over. She discovers the, the dart tip in the finger, and then the man's tracks. In jaguar form, she chases after him. But he's a shaman, and he changes into spirit form and dives into a stream. She chases him. He runs down under the earth. She chases him. He runs up a tall tree into the sky. She chases him. But, finally, he hides in a huge black storm cloud. She gets dizzy from the wind and darkness up there. And he slips away. He goes back down into the forest and keeps on hunting. With his blowgun, he kills a paca, a big delicious rodent, and brings it with him. Reaching his village, 
He leaves it with his mother-in-law so she can cook it, and they'll all have a nice meal. Then he goes home. <clears throat> but Wantayanko picks up his trail again. She follows it to his village, goes into his mother-in-law's house, eats her, and assumes her form. The shaman says to his two middle kids, Go to Grandma's house. She's got a nice fat paka cooking that you guys will love. Off they go. Later, the shaman's wife goes over, too, along with her baby. When she greets there, she greets who she thinks is her mother, but is actually Wantayanko in disguise. She hands the baby to her. She says, where are the kids? Wantayanko says, they went off to play, and strokes the baby's head. Let me see the paka, says the shaman's wife. She goes to the big clay pot boiling on the fire and is horrified to see through the steam her child's foot floating in it. Meanwhile, Wantanko's claws are coming out, pressing into the baby, making her cry. The shaman's wife snatches the baby back and dashes out of the house. Back home, she tearfully tells her husband what happened. Why did my mother do that? She wails. That must be Wantanko, not your mother. Don't talk crazy, she says between sobs. You make it worse. The shaman runs out, finds his older son, tells him what happened. He brings him back to the house, and they grab their spears. Stop! Don't hurt her, says the wife. She's my mother. She's Wantanko, says the shaman, racing away. When Wantanko sees him and his son with their spears, she bursts out laughing. Ha <laughs> ha! You think you can kill me with those big red worms? She cackles. They attack. She dies laughing, nailed to the floor of the hut. Back home, the man tells his wife, We did it. Our family is safe. We killed Wantayanko. You maniac! His wife howls. You killed my mom! She runs over to her mother's house and finds the old woman alive and well. Two spears are stuck in the dirt floor. Mom, they, they, they said they killed you. No, <laughs> they were just tickling me. They were just tickling me with those big red worms. Life goes on as it did before, only without the two middle children, and with Wantanko playing the role of the shaman's mother-in-law. Months later, the shaman decides to try again to kill Wantanko. He invites her to poison fish in a stream with a dam and some barbasco roots to, po to paralyze the fish. Before she arrives, he plucks a hair from his head. Become a snake, he says, and dips it in the water. It becomes a tiny rainbow-colored boa that wraps around his finger. Grow, he says, and dips it in the water again. It gets a little bigger. More, he says, and dips it again, and again it grows. The third time you're dipped again, be huge, he tells it. Wantanko comes walking through the jungle, catching snakes and lizards, eating their heads and throwing their bodies away. Then she re reaches the stream that the shaman dammed, and she bites the heads off some fish that have been paralyzed by the barbasco poison he put in the water. What's this? she says. A pretty little water snake. She picks it up. It wriggles and drops in the water. She picks it up again. It's bigger, she says. Again it squirms and falls back in the water. 
This time, when she picks it up, it wraps its gorgeous, heavy coils around her arm. Off balance, she nearly falls into the water and inadvertently dips it into the water again, where it becomes gigantic. Its beautiful tail surges out of the water and wraps around her neck and pulls her in, and it coils around her and crushes every bone in her body except the ones in her head. She dies, for real this time. The shaman cuts off her head, and the snake takes her body up to the sky. That's why Wan Tiang Ko can't walk on the earth in physical form anymore. She can only come here as a spirit. The shaman sticks her head up in the crotch of a tree. Over the next few months, her skull transforms into the seeds of unqui si, the spice we use to flavor fish soup. And that rainbow-colored snake is the power behind the visions of Yahe. Thinking about this weird story and the murmuring ghosts of Kokaya, we brushed our teeth, peed, and set up Rufino's nylon tents, one of which had a tiny hole made by the cigarette of a tourist some months ago. I volunteered to sleep in that tent along with Sixto. Around midnight, a swarm of mosquitoes poured in through the hole. As Heraclitus wrote, everything flows. Paralyzed by sleep, I was aware of the mosquitoes but couldn't keep them away. Hungry as jaguars, they couldn't believe their luck. The blood from my legs tasted like mango juice to them. They ignored Sixto. I would have preferred an invasion of ghosts. In the morning we tried to catch fish, but didn't catch any. Then we had a scanty lunch of spaghetti noodles and ketchup, because Che had brought nearly no food to Kokaya. Yost and Rose didn't mind, but Julie laid into Che and me for being irresponsible. Scratching my legs... I scolded Che. He hung his head and looked remorseful. Scratching my legs again, I reminded Julie she was paying only twenty-five bucks a day. She narrowed her eyes but didn't say anything. We all hiked back to Supernatura, where Che and Christine cooked a decent meal. Next day, the others went to the nearby village of Siekoya, just downriver, to buy jewelry made from seeds and watch a soccer game while I stayed behind and cooked spaghetti with a vegetable sauce and scratched my legs. Rufino brought back a live chicken. I cut her head off. Rose helped me pluck her on the open-air platform behind Supernatura, where I had slipped on cow spit and sprained my ankle a year and a half earlier. Che, who ostensibly speaks no English, poked his deadpan face out of the house and said, perfect pronunciation, and for no apparent reason at all, please, look at the sky. I cut up the chicken, and Che and Christine cooked her. At night, <clears throat> there was a big, drunken New Year's Eve party with dozens of sequoias 
from the village of Siakoya. Salsa music blasted from a boombox. I raked my legs with my fingernails. Following Ecuadorian custom, the old year was burned in effigy. A dummy with a cloth head at a t-shirt and old blue jeans and rubber boots was doused with gasoline at midnight and set on fire. This one was named Tawanke in honor of my having brought in my first group of tourists. Rufino's son, Fermin, fired off a shotgun in the air. From very high in the night sky, the jaguar goddess contemplated us, thinking everything, saying nothing. Sitting on the edge of the floor, Rose told me about rave parties in Holland. She said she was a lesbian, and her power animal was the hippopotamus. I could see that. She was pretty, freckled nose, short black hair, blue eyes, and big and strong like a river horse. Che and Christine danced, silhouetted against the bonfire, very late at night when they were very drunk. They were still dancing gracefully together, as they always did, but they were also staggering and leaning against each other, so their silhouette seemed that of a small, drunken giraffe. At 4 a.m., after two or three hours of sleep, I pried my eyes open and made oatmeal and instant coffee with powdered milk. Then, as we had agreed, I woke the others. They were still drunk and wanted to sleep longer, but I kept at them till they stopped swearing at me and wrapped their fingers around the plastic mugs of instant coffee I pressed into their hands. Edmundo from across the river was two hours late to pick us up in his motor canoe, but, in perfect third-world fashion, got us to Chiritza precisely in time for the 8.30 bus to, Quito, to, to Lago, where we caught the 12.30 back to Quito. Currently, I'm still on Vicente Rocafuerte Street in Lago Agrio. I gave up on the post office. I just left the cafe and ordered the lunch special at Los Tucanos restaurant. Perched on a chair on the bank of a river of human voices, I take dictation from the world, living and dead. My legs itch like crazy. After eating, I'll visit my friend Elias Ramirez at his store, where he does tattoos using a machine he made himself and sells rainforest medicines and indigenous handicrafts and animal skulls and pelts and his own wooden sculptures. I want to hold the river dolphin's skull and the jaguar's skull again and try to hear the voices of their ghosts. Also, I think I want a tattoo. Elias's store offends my morals, the morals my girlfriend Lily's husband once accused me of not having. I've asked Elias to stop selling products made from dead rainforest animals. He agrees it's wrong, but in the end, nothing changes. <laughs>